As we approach the celebration of our Savior's birth, we take time to examine those lessons that will most help us understand the meaning of that birth. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Welcome to Gospel Doctrine. This is our second to last podcast episode of 2019. This week's episode, Christmas, Good Tidings of Great Joy. And I'm glad that uh, the church, the Come Follow Me authors have decided to title this lesson this way because we will be talking about good tidings uh, this week. As always, should you care to ask a question, send an email to gt at gospeltoctrine.com. This week coming up, we have, uh, after this lesson today, we have coming up our special episode in which I'll respond to a variety of your questions with my opinions from the scriptures. And then to round out the year, we will finish our study of the book of Revelation with the second half. And that'll be all coming up in the next few days. And uh, also, if you if you happen to be subscribed to the podcast, you will notice we released a special episode just yesterday, which is just me reading the scriptures that have to do with the nativity. I always kind of like, everyone reads Luke 2, but I always kind of like to add Matthew chapter 1 in there because it starts with, now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. And I asked my fiance, Kendra, to underscore that with some music, and uh, she did a marvelous job. So we're, uh, we were grateful to release that for you. It's, it's less than eight minutes long. Hope you enjoy that this Christmas season. Well, this, this time around, we get to study the Christmas message, and we get to, I get to interpret what that means to me, because there's not a whole lot of guidelines in the lesson plan for this week. Uh, I basically get to decide what, what scriptures, what lessons about Christmas, what messages from the apostles speak to me most dearly. And so I have kind of pinpointed three, three main points that I want to make, and then uh, a, a message from President Nelson that I want to highlight it's from more than 20 years ago, but I just found it in the last few months, and I think it's really meaningful. So that'll be sort of the course that we'll take this week. And this lesson might be a little shorter than normal, which I'm sure you'll all be happy to hear because <laughs> I did not realize that I went so long on my lesson for Revelation, the first half of Revelation. It was almost two hours, and I always try to keep my lessons under an hour. Don't always succeed. Uh, but, and if you have an, a strong opinion about the length of my lessons, you can email me and, and give me your opinion. I'm, I'm always uh, open to hearing what your reactions are to what I teach. But uh, I, I had spent so long, I know that I've gotten behind, but I am engaged and uh, it's Christmas and I've got some business things going on and just life caught up with me this fall and winter. And so I hope you'll forgive me for getting behind. I'm hoping to get caught up this week before I leave on my honeymoon. But uh, that the fact that that lesson went long was not due to any of that. It's just so much material to cover, and I do love the book of Revelation, and I couldn't bear to not share some of those insights with you. So if you have to break it up into more than one session, then that would make sense, and I'll try to be shorter on the second half of Revelation, but that first half, if you if you want to stop hating the book of Revelation and start enjoying it, I, I feel like you, you just need a 
a solid introduction with with some basic principles that will help really uh, lay the groundwork there. So I hope I hope you'll forgive me for going a little over time. We'll we'll try to be quicker today. Okay. So first, so three three main points about Christmas. The first one is this: if you think about the expectations surrounding the Lord's coming to earth in the flesh, we can understand that Christmas was a long-awaited fulfillment of a promise. Now, the first scripture I think I would cite along this vein is Daniel chapter 9. So you'll remember I spoke in our Revelation lesson, I spoke specifically about Daniel 9, and I said that Daniel had been praying. He, He took on the personification, he, he, he epitomized the nation of Israel and he incarnated it into his own person and then he repented to God for all the sins of, him, of his nation. Uh, and then he said, please let our exile, let my exile end. And that was a very Christ-like thing to do. He was basically saying, I, I am putting myself in between God and the nation of Israel and I, or the people of Israel. And I personally am repenting for all the sins that have gone in centuries past. And God, will you please forgive me and let me return from the the fact that you've shut me out from from your presence. Well, in case you weren't listening last week, uh, Jeremiah promised that that exile would last 70 years. So Daniel is offering this prayer at the end of that period. And then an angel appears to him and says, yes, there will be uh, a, a kind of recovery from this exile you're in now, but it won't be total. The real blessings will return. So you've, you've been now waiting for 10 weeks or 7 times 10 periods of time. When they say weeks, what they mean is 7 periods of time. In this case, years. So you've been waiting for 70 years for the exile to end, but it's actually 70 weeks that you have to wait, meaning another 490 years. So you think you've been waiting long already, Daniel, but actually you have to wait another 490 years. So doing a little bit of math as we did, as I sort of hinted at last time, the if the Babylonian exile happened between 605 and 589 BC, and then another 70 years after that, so we have to sort of guess at where that 70 years clock started ticking, but let's say that it, that, that it started ticking in 590 BC or 589 BC, then that would be 519 BC. Another 490 years after that would still leave a good 20 to 30 years before the birth of Christ. And on the far end, it would be 50 years before the birth of Christ. So depending on how you interpret the time frames involved, that angel's promise, the time frame that he set up, didn't exactly correspond with the birth of Christ. But what the angel seems to be promising is your Savior, your Messiah, this promised king, your relief from the... For right, right then during the time of Daniel, they were suffering at the hands of the Persians, but they'd been suffering at the hands of the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Persians and the Medes and the Chaldeans, and they would suffer at the hands of the Turks and... At several other, and the Macedonians and the Seleucids, and so Israel's history is a history of suffering and oppression, and then finally at the hands of the Romans. This promise given to Daniel 
it echoed throughout the centuries. It was something on which many generations of Jews hung their entire hopes. They, they prayed, they wondered, they watched. You remember in the book of Luke, in chapter 2 of Luke, shortly after the birth of Christ, Mary and Joseph, they take Jesus into the temple, and there are two people there who know who Jesus is just by looking at him. And one of them is this old man, Simeon, who has been promised that he won't die until he sees the Messiah. Now, he's so old, presumably, that he's been around since the time when Daniel's 490 years ran out, whether it was 30 years before or 50 years before. He's been waiting this entire time. He's basically been saying, God, you promised the Messiah would come. And we've been so patiently waiting, but it hurts. It hurts to be without without thy messenger, thy, thy promised leader here on the earth among us, somebody who's powerful to save. It hurts to be without him among us. So please show me thy salvation of thy people Israel. And then Anna the prophetess had a similar experience. We don't know how long she'd been waiting or what she'd been promised, but she recognized Jesus as the Messiah and proclaimed him in front of everyone. That's in the the second half of Luke chapter 2. Now, these are just two examples, and those are just two people that happened to be in the temple that day. There are untold others, untold numbers of others who could have possibly had a similar experience had they witnessed Jesus or had they met him early in his life, later in his life. We don't know how many people recognized him and had been waiting and praying and yearning to, have the, to see the salvation of God come upon the people of Israel. So when Jesus was finally born, then this was the attitude. So we think, now the reason I bring this up We think in our lives that God's blessings, God's timing is not our own, and we don't know how long it's going to be before uh, that blessed day, whatever that blessed day is in our lives. Maybe it's uh, recovery from an illness. Maybe it's when a person, another person will show up in our lives. Maybe it's when our children will have blessings come to them. But we're always waiting Every one of us, we're always waiting for a blessing from God. We're praying for it, and we're yearning for it. And the message of Christmas, one of the first message that I want to emphasize is that the scriptures around Christmas show that God's blessings do arrive. There is no blessing for which we don't have to wait. That's just a fact. The way that blessings work is after they're over, after we already receive them, we don't sit around yearning for them to show up. And so once they come, then we kind of forget it. We go on to the next thing that we are without. So we're constantly thinking about the things we don't have. That's not necessarily bad. It's just the nature of life, and it's the nature of time. But it does mean that we're always waiting for God's timing to be now. And we think, and Satan wants us to think, that God's timing won't happen. Remember in Second Peter chapter 3, one of the arguments that these false teachers used to peel people away from the gospel of Christ was that Jesus is delaying his coming, and by delaying what they meant was he's going to delay it indefinitely, his second coming. He's, he's never actually going to show up. But the scriptures around Christmas show us Jesus did show up. He eventually did. It took a long time. There were people who waited for so long, and had they known when it would be, the, the Nephites knew, 
But had the people of the Old Testament lands known exactly when it would be, it might have felt like too long to them. There are some things that we are just not given to know the timing of. Uh, We can also think, uh, speaking of Book of Mormon people, we can also think of the people in the last chapter of Helaman, Helaman chapter 16, who are being oppressed because they have faith for this future day, this day and night and day with light throughout the night that is the sign of Christ's birth that they've been waiting on, and it's been made public, and so then they're being humiliated because they're having faith in this, what is obviously a supernatural event, and it keeps not happening. And eventually, in in 3 Nephi chapter 1, we learn that they're going to be put to death if that sign doesn't come. The decree goes out, the government is so wicked that eventually the decision is made. If you believe in this garbage, then you're going to be put to death. And Nephi, the prophet, the son of Nephi, is praying one night. And it, uh, this is just such a wonderful passage. I'm going to read to you from 3 Nephi chapter 1. And I, I want you to think about what, what are the, what's the Christmas in your life? What is the blessing that has been put off for far too long? And I want you to realize that you really can empathize with these people in the ancient Americas. 3 Nephi chapter 1, verse 8. Behold, they did watch steadfastly for that day and that night and that day, which should be as one day as if there were no night, that they might know that their faith had not been in vain. So there are two things. They have had faith, and they don't, they don't know that their faith is not in vain. So it's faith, and it's not sure knowledge. So they have this faith, and it, it hurts sep- the, the fact that they're separated from the object of their faith, from the reward of their faith. It hurts. It's a constant source of pain, or discomfort at least. And the second thing is that they're watching steadfastly. So this is just a wonderful verse to kind of show what the attitude feels like as we wait for the blessings of God to appear in our lives. And look, that's the, that's the message of Christmas, is that the first message that I wanted to bring up is that God's timing might be unfathomable, but his blessings do come. All right, the second point. The the way that Christ appeared was not the way that anybody expected it. So Christmas was an upending of these expectations. Now to think of the word upending, I'm going to um, reference another Old Testament scripture, and this time it's from Jonah. So Jonah chapter 3 In Jonah chapter 3, Jonah has uh, traveled the very first part of the chapter. He's finally made his way to Nineveh. After trying to run away, getting swallowed by the whale, he has his change of heart, and he makes his way to Nineveh. Uh, And if you want to understand that there's just so many wonderful lessons to be learned from the book of Jonah, you can go back to our Old Testament uh, for season one and and listen to that lesson. But he... uh, he, the message that, jo- that comes out of Jonah's mouth is that you, the city of Nineveh, in 40 days, the city of Nineveh will be overthrown. And when we hear that word overthrown, it's very similar to what he would have said in Hebrew. He, he basically means everything's going to be turned upside down. What they heard was the city of Nineveh is going to be conquered. It's going to be destroyed. And, that, and that's what Jonah hoped would happen. He hoped they wouldn't listen to him. He wanted them to be destroyed. His heart was not in the job that he was doing, even after he finally decided to do it. Now, the Ninevites 
heard that message and they actually were touched by it. They felt pricked in their hearts. They dedicated themselves to repentance and they changed. They repented in sackcloth and ashes and then God withheld his wrath from them. Now, if we examine what Jonah said, he said that in 40 days, the city of Nineveh will be overthrown. And the Hebrew word for that is hafak or hafak. I don't know exactly how to pronounce it. But uh, the, the point of it is, it means to turn up something upside down. The Greek equivalent, by the way, if you were to, if you were to read the Greek Old Testament, the, the Septuagint, the Greek equivalent is catastrophe, uh, that, or catastrophe, which is obviously the root of our word catastrophe. And so if you think of what a catastrophe is, in 40 days, Nineveh will have a catastrophe. But really what it means is things will turn upside down. And what ended up happening was that the way of doing things in Nineveh was turned upside down. Instead of continuing on in wickedness, they changed. They changed their hearts. They changed their direction. They changed their decisions. And God decided that he wasn't going to continue. He wasn't going to keep his promise of cursing them because they had made a different selection as to where they wanted to go. So really, Jonah's prediction came true. It just came true in a way that no one expected. No one expected that they would actually repent. No one on Jonah's side of the fence before he got to Nineveh expected that this would, and none of the the readers of the book of Jonah, they expect that the Ninevites are actually going to repent. Uh, this, This is a book given to Uh, a a Hebrew audience. They hated the Assyrians, and the Assyrians were the wickedest people on the face of the earth, and that's the capital of Assyria was Nineveh. And so the expectation is that they're going to kill this Hebrew prophet, and he arrives there, and then they repent. So that was an upending of expectations. The book of Jonah is a perfect example, and Jesus even uses the sign of the prophet Jonah as a metaphor for his own resurrection, his own life. And the in, in a similar way, the way that Jesus arrived on the scene was an upending of expectations. Now, the way that David, that so Jesus was the new David, right? He was the son of David. He's called this whenever he's referred to as the Messiah. That's one of his first titles, thou, thou son of David. What that means is you are going to step into the house of David uh, in the book of uh, Second Camp, Second Samuel chapter 7, uh, starting, starting in verse 12, the Lord basically promises to David, uh, not, only, not only is thy son going to make me a house, you're not going to build the temple, David, but your son is going to make me a house, your son is going to make me a temple, and then I will build your house. There will, when thy days be fulfilled, I will set up thy seed after thee. This is Second Samuel verse 12. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, he shall be my son. So this is the Davidic covenant that the house, the kingship of the children of Israel, of the people of Israel, will continue in David's line forever. And so when Jesus is called the son of David, David was, now remember what kind of king David was. He was a glorious king. He reigned in Jerusalem. He conquered Jerusalem, first of all, and then fortified it, built up the walls. And then Solomon, his son, uh, finally conquered all the enemies that remained around the, the 
the boundaries, the borders of Israel that had been in dispute for so long. And it reached its largest, the kingdom of Israel reached its largest extent under Solomon. And people paid tribute, they had autonomy, they had freedom, they had religious freedom. And that was the, those were the kingdoms of David and Solomon. So the expectation was that the Messiah was going to come and restore this not only national pride, but freedom, freedom to worship. The, the people of Israel had changed drastically in the centuries between David and Christ. They had recognized that the exile had done something very profound to them. They had recognized that they had neglected their covenants that they made on Mount Sinai, that their, their forefathers had made on Mount Sinai. They had neglected the Sabbath. They had neglected the, the scriptures, the Torah. They had neglected the way of eating. And this is why they're so strict with Jesus, by the way, is that they had decided as a people, and over the generations, they had become more and more strict on how they were going to interpret this because they didn't ever want to be exiled again. And therefore, they were ready. When, when the Messiah returned, they knew they were ready. They were a people that was now worthy of this glorious king who would lead them to military victory, to be glorious in battle. And there is some indication from the scriptures, as Jesus himself made clear in Luke chapter 24, he said, shouldn't Christ, or in other words, the Messiah, shouldn't Christ have suffered these things to enter into, on, into his kingdom? So obviously, there were indications in the scriptures that Christ should suffer, but there were more indications that Christ would be victorious and a glorious reigner, ruling monarch. Uh, and so therefore, the way that Jesus showed up, now let's just examine what happened, but it was an upending of expectations. It was totally contrary to what most people believed would happen. First of all, let's, uh, let's look at one of Jesus' first teachings. In Matthew chapter 5-7, through 7, we have the, the Sermon on the Mount. And what does Jesus say? Blessed, it starts with the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. In other words, blessed are those who are, who've been displaced, who are on the outside looking in of the way that the, the blessings of this world are apportioned. All, of those, all those of you who are yearning and are wishing that you could be part of something great. Blessed are all those people who are outside. That doesn't sound like uh, a king. The, uh, if you think about the power structure of a kingdom, you think about a pyramid. We've talked about, over the course of this year, we've talked about many times the upside-down kingdom. But the way most kingdoms work is you have the vast majority of people on the bottom layer, uh, and then every layer you go up, there are fewer people, and there's greater power until finally the, the very pinnacle is the king or the ruler, and that person has the most power, and there's only one of them. The way Jesus' kingdom worked was exactly the opposite. The people who were the humblest, he said, would be the rulest. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the entire earth. That is just strange teaching. And that was the entire way that Jesus conducted his ministry and his life, his personal life as well. So what did the angels, what expectation did the angels set up? Now, the angels that arrived to the shepherds, Jesus was first proclaimed to Mary and Elizabeth and Joseph, but he was first publicly proclaimed to the shepherds that were nearby Bethlehem on the night of his birth. And what did they say? Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings. I mentioned we talk about good tidings of great joy, the, the title of this week's lesson. 
The word good tidings comes from a word in Hebrew, mebesher, which means a good messenger, a messenger who brings good tidings. In Hebrew, it's one word. You are, if you bring bad tidings, you're a completely different kind of messenger. You don't, you don't even use the same word about you at all. But when you bring good tidings, you are a mebesher. If you look up good tidings in your uh, gospel library app and you do a search on that phrase, every Every example of it you'll find in the Old Testament actually has to do with some sort of news about what's happening with a king. So generally what good tidings meant, you can see, even from our scriptures without doing any further study, you can see that good tidings is actually good news about a king. Isn't that interesting? Good tidings specifically means I'm bringing you news. I am the one who came from the battle site. I'm bringing you news of a military victory. Our king is victorious. So when you read good tidings, when you read good news, you you can understand that what people hear is, we won the battle. Our king is victorious. Now, uh, to, to go a little bit forward in time, good tidings then in Greek was translated, the word you, E-U, or epsilon, upsilon, was the prefix that meant whatever followed was good. And then the, uh, the agelion, or angelion, is the message. This good message was turned into a compound word to mean that it, the same thing that it meant in the Old Testament, the good tidings meant, meaning good news about a king. Our, our nation, our king, is victorious in battle. In Old English, when they were translating the scriptures, they, they took those two parts of the Greek word and they translated them one by one and put them together. It's actually called a calque. Uh, a perfect example is skyscraper. As they translated it into French, they, they took both parts of the word skyscraper and they translated them individually and then put it together again to form one word. And the word for skyscraper in French is gratte-ciel, which means skyscraper, literally. And the same thing is true of gospel. We translated two parts of that word and put them together again. And that's why we have gospel, which was originally God spell, meaning good message or good messenger. And the, the meaning is exactly the same. The meaning has thus been transferred faithfully from Hebrew to Greek to Old English into Modern English. The word gospel literally means our king is victorious. Now, if you find where it, it shows up, the, the places where it's most relevant are in Isaiah chapter 40, Isaiah chapter 52, and then finally, and I believe it's Isaiah chapter 65. And in each place, it talks about how the king is victorious. So in one place it says, in, in, I believe in chapter 40, it's, Behold your God. Your God has come unto you. I bring you good tidings. Your God is here. Your God is present among you. That's the first indication that we have what good tidings means. In Isaiah chapter 52, we're talking about the messenger whose feet are blessed on the mountains, and that messenger is carrying the message, thy God reigneth. So behold your God, your God reigneth. This is the kind of good tidings that people think about when they hear that word, mebasher, what kind of messenger are you? So this we don't know exactly the Hebrew. We only have Greek in the New Testament. We don't know the Hebrew words that the angel was saying to the shepherds, but he would have said some version of, I am that good messenger that is telling you that our king is victorious in battle, and your God is here. Behold your God, your God reigneth. So that's what good tidings are, (laughs) 
They're good tidings of great joy. And then he says, then, then he, there is a huge contrast in the message that this angel brings to these shepherds. He says, I bring you these ki- this same kind of good tidings, and then unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord, the Messiah, this promised King, and here's the sign. You'll find him wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Now the word manger means, in French, it means to eat. The word manger comes from the word where animals eat. It's a feeding trough. And we have sort of romanticized this word as if it's a comfortable place to lie or there's something bucolic about the setting. There was nothing fancy about this stable. It was a simple feeding trough. And Jesus was put where animals eat. It's not the worst circumstance that any child has ever been brought up, but it is Think about the tragedies that would have to occur in your life before you would lay down your newborn child where an animal eats. You would probably have to have a number of humbling experiences before you'd be willing to do that. So though he wasn't the worst, uh, uh, the most oppressed person in the entire world, and there have been people that had it worse than Jesus in in the circumstances of his birth, that wasn't the point. The point is there was absolutely nothing grandiose about the way Jesus was born, about the way he came into the earth. In fact, the circumstances surrounding Jesus' birth were really assist, uh, an entire sequence of calamities or near calamities for his family. First of all, an unmarried pregnancy. Second of all, they have to travel in the time right before the birth, and then there's nowhere to go. And then, within a short time, the, the king himself has it in for this young child and sends his death squads to do, to do away with not only your son, but every kid that even resembles him in age and gender, in the entire village where you live. You have brought death to everyone that loved you for the past two years. And then you're a refugee for, in, a, in a strange land for who knows how long. This is, these are the circumstances that surround the birth of Jesus. It's anything but what uh, a, a casual observer, a reader of the Hebrew scriptures would have expected when they heard the, word, the phrase, good tidings. So here's the point. I wanted to give you that background. Je- uh, the birth of Christ was the best gift ever given to humanity, but the package it was wrapped up in could not be more humble. And therefore, the message is this, God's gifts come in disguise. What are the mangers in your life? What are the things that you think are a series of calamities or near calamities for yourself and your family? And how can you find evidence of God's glory? How can they become to you news about a great victory? How can you understand that your king is victorious when you see these gifts showing up in the mangers around you. That's our second point. And our final point is perhaps a little easier to make. Christmas is the supreme manifestation of God's love at that time. Now, obviously, uh, at this point has been made many times. There is no Christmas without Easter, or as President Hinckley put it, and I'm paraphrasing, that had Jesus not gone on to perform the atonement to work out our salvation, then uh, Christmas would have been the celebration of a birth just like any other. There'd be no reason to look back on it with the fondness that we do. So all of that, of course, is true. And yet, 
returning for a moment to 3 Nephi chapter 1. If we read in verse 13, Nephi has been praying that his people will be spared because they believed in Christ, they put their trust in God. And in verse 13, he finally receives his answer. Jesus, God, says to Nephi, the prophet, says, Lift up your head and be of good cheer, for behold, the time is at hand. And on this night shall the sign be given, and on the morrow come I into the world, to show unto the world that I will fulfill all that which I have caused to be spoken by the mouth of my holy prophets. Now the being who is responding, there is no question that the being who is responding to Nephi's prayer is God. It is Jehovah. It is the one that the entire Hebrew scriptures talk about as being in charge, the creator, the director of things both in heaven and on the earth. And what he's saying is, I am going to be in this frail, tiny, human, baby body. I'm going to be the most vulnerable of all creatures tomorrow. Uh, On the morrow come I into the world. That gift, that condescension of God is so profound. His willingness to subject himself to a fallen world that he never deserved just to be closer to us and to find some means of understanding our pain and relieving our pain, the pains of, of normal life, of being in a fallen world, and the pains of sin and of death and of spiritual death. The fact that he was willing to do all of that for us with no real need to do it, he was perfect, shows his intense love for us. Now, if you want to understand another level of this line of thinking, think about the, the vision of of the, the dream of the prophet Lehi in the Book of Mormon. He, he has his first dream in chapter 8, I believe, of 1 Nephi. But then ne- his son Nephi wants to understand the dream of his father, so he prays that he'll understand it. And when Nephi is given the same dream, he asks, what does that... We, we know now, because we've been taught, that the tree of life represents the love of God. But Nephi asks, what does the tree of life mean? And instead of answering the question... The angel says, do you know the meaning of the condescension of God? Nephi says, well, you know, I know some things, but not everything. I don't know that one. And, and the angel says, look. And Nephi sees. First he sees a vision of Mary, and then he sees Mary carried away in the Holy Spirit, in a cloud of the Holy Ghost. And then he sees Mary show up, and she's pregnant, and then he sees her give birth, and then he sees the baby Jesus Christ, and then he sees the life of Christ. And then the angel asks the same question again. What's the meaning of that fruit? And Jesus says, it's the love of God that shows itself abroad in the hearts of men. Only after seeing the condescension of God to come, uh, to come in the flesh on the earth could Nephi know what the love of God actually was. And that is the meaning of Christmas. That is, is that God was willing to come to earth. Uh, there's a, a very well-known verse of Scripture For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And if we truly understood the meaning of that verse, then we would weep every day for gratitude when we contemplated the gift that Christmas represents. So for those willing to see God's love, this is our third point, for those willing to see God's God's plan radiates love and multiplies it everywhere you look. So those are the three points I wanted to make about Christmas, and I want to now share a, a brief message from President Nelson. This, this actually, he shared it sometime in the 90s. I can't find out exactly when. 
but it's called it's from a it's from a talk that I think he gave um, to a, a group of wards. It's called the Combined Yale Wards Christmas Message. So if you look this up, gifts. The title of his talk is "Gifts for an, for an Empty Stocking," uh, and here I'm just going to read these three paragraphs from President Nelson. In homes throughout the modern world, stockings are still hung by the chimney with care in hopes that St. Nicholas soon would be there. But oddly enough, one stocking seems to be missing. Perhaps it has never been, never even been considered. I speak of a stocking for the babe of Bethlehem. Of all people central to the Christmas scene, only his stocking seems to have been forgotten. It doesn't seem quite right inasmuch as it is his birthday that we are celebrating. Just as there was no room for the Christ child at the inn at the time of his birth with so many people, there is no place for him in their hearts. The world he came to save has been so filled with trivia that little room has been left for the Lord and his righteousness. Many people have made room for sports and recreation, trinkets and toys, but the Prince of Peace, the Savior of mankind, is often forgotten. At Christmas time, we exchange gifts, but what have we done to show our appreciation to him who created the entire earth with all of its beauty and abundance? How could we ignore him who gave us life and all that sustains life? These priceless gifts come from him. Wouldn't it be nice if we could improve our ways as a gift to him at Christmas time? If his stocking has been empty in our minds, what could we now give? I love that message, and I've been thinking about that for weeks now. And I realized that if I... Uh, so I've been thinking, actually, about putting a literal stocking on my mantle and putting gifts in it that would be gifts intended for Jesus Christ. But then I had to think, okay, what would I put in there? That this, this thought just occurred to me as I was sitting down to record today. What would I put in there? I would put... I, what, what I would do is I would take a slip of paper, and when I did some act of service for someone... I would write on there, I, I was able to serve someone in need. I was able to be nice to someone that loves me. I, I was able to give of something that I wanted to someone else. And then it occurred to me, the only gifts I have to give Jesus are actually not for Jesus at all. There is, no, there is literally no way that I can serve Jesus directly. There's nothing that he needs for me that I can do for him. Isn't that fascinating that there is a person that has lived on this earth that we can only serve that if we think about all of the ways in which we'd like to do something nice for him, the only thing we can actually do is to do something for a person that is not him. That says so much about the character of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he is happiest when other people are being served. That is the... that. That idea is the core of what we can give him as a gift, is to become that kind of person ourselves. If somebody thinks about you, do they think, I would make Mark the most happy person in the world if I served someone else? Or would they think, I would make Mark happy if I got Mark something that he wanted for Christmas? I mean, I'm still that kind of person where people give me gifts for Christmas for me. But wouldn't it be wonderful if I were the kind of person that's, that people think, I'm going to make Mark happy by making the people around me happy, by serving my brother, my sister, my wife, my husband, my father, my mother, my children. That would mean, if, if, if people said that about me, that would mean 
that I was truly accomplishing my Savior's purpose for me in my life. So a couple of challenges. The first one is, and these are coming, I believe, from, from President Nelson. The first one is, let's put a stocking out, either literally or metaphorically, for our Savior, Jesus Christ, and fill it with gifts for him. And those gifts are going to be for other people. And then, on a deeper level, let's try to become, maybe not this Christmas, but over the course of the next few years of our lives, let's try to become the kind of person where we are made most happy by people being in the service of each other. We are most happy by witnessing love in the world, and that love does not have to be directed at us for it to bring joy into our lives. Now, I'm not trying to say that we are not one of those people that should be made happy. We should not neglect ourselves. That doesn't make God happy when we make ourselves miserable by any means. But what I'm saying is when we derive joy from the service of others that, and when, when people understand that be, uh, joy being received all around brings us joy, then we will have accomplished the goal of drawing closer to our Savior. We will understand a little bit better of what it's like to have the pure love of Christ. I think that is the best gift that Jesus would wish for us this Christmas season. To all of you listening to Gospel Doctrine, I wish you a Merry Christmas. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. 